So, but we'll be in Acts 24 this morning. It's printed in your bulletin. We're going to look at the whole chapter of Acts 24. So if you have your Bible, you can turn follow along in the bulletin. Uh, but if you'll follow along now as we hear the reading of God's word. Starting in Acts 24, 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made in this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that these things were so. And when the governor had nodded him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And, then they, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to, and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody and have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And some days Felix came down with his wife Priscilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about the faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the time... Excuse me, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us as we uh, look at this story of Paul before Felix this morning. I pray that you would help us to see how we can apply this to our lives. I pray that the Spirit would open our hearts and our minds. Uh, to the truth of your word, to the truth of the gospel, and what it means to be an authentic witness for Christ. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at an authentic witness. And it made me think of something, that as I was doing my usual morning scroll through the news, which I do through several papers each morning, 
I came across an article from the New York Times that caught my attention. And it stayed my attention that it, it, I remembered this even a few months later. And it, the headline was, Inside the Delirious Rise of the Super Fake Handbags. Now, I'm not normally reading articles about handbags or purses. That's not, <laughs> not really my thing. But it was the phrasing of the delirious rise, but especially that word, super fake handbags, that caught my attention. The subheading read, can you tell the difference between a $10,000 Chanel bag and a $200 knockoff? Almost nobody can, and it's turning luxury fashion upside down. Now, I will say that it's quite a long article about the evolution of fake designer handbags and how they become more popular through the rise of TikTok, the methods that they use that they're getting so good that it's harder to tell reels from fakes. And in spite of all sort of high-tech authentication methods, such as hologram and blockchains, in some instances, it comes down to counting the number of stitches across a known row. The article had pictures where you could take quizzes where you could try to determine a real and a fake side by side and guess which one was real and which one was fake. And honestly, I couldn't. Maybe it's because I'm a guy, I don't know. But they were really, really good fakes. It even ended with philosophical quandaries of, if you or even others can't tell what's real and what's fake, does it even really matter anymore? But one line of the story stood out to me the most. They were talking to an authenticating expert about high-end fashion, and this person said, you always needed to look inside to tell. You always needed to look inside. You have to open the purse to tell. She then explained that the counterfeit bags spend all their detailed work on the outside so that it looks right to everyone on the outside, but they cut corners on the inside. The materials aren't the same quality. The stitching isn't as good. It's not as evenly spaced. Something is a bit off on the closure mechanism. It doesn't just close the same way. So they spend all the money on the outside to make the outside look good and all the time and cut cost and therefore the quality on the inside. Now, I can say with utmost certainty this morning that Paul did not care about Chanel or Celine, <laughs> but he did care about authenticity. He proclaimed what true faith in Christ is. He wrote in his epistles that we should live as those who have been redeemed by God in light of who we are in Christ. His life gave us an example as to what a follower of Christ should look like. And we've been going through this for the last 14 chapters of Acts. Paul lived what he preached. Paul was authentic. Now we as a church should care about authenticity. We should care about our words and our actions matching. We should care about how we represent the gospel of Christ. Both in our church, the larger church as a greater whole, and in our individual lives. A recent study from the Barna Group that does the studies about religion in America looked into why millennials in particular have stopped going to church. And they categorized them into five major reasons. And the first reason, they grouped several things together, but it really wasn't that shocking to me. It was hypocrisy, moral failure, and irrelevance. Hypocrisy, moral failure, and irrelevance. The second reason, and I find it closely related to why the first one is so there, is God is missing in the church. And sadly, this isn't limited to one denomination or, or, or one type of church. It's rampant across the church, especially in America. And as someone who loves the church and believes in the church as the body of the Christ, and as God's chosen means to reach the world with the message of the gospel, the church isn't doing too well right now. The church looks right on the outside, 
But does the inside of the church match the outside? For many churches, thankfully, praise God, it does. But for far too many people, young and old, they're growing up where they're looking at the church a little bit more critically, and they're finding that the inside doesn't match the outside. What the church says and how it behaves are often two different things. And so we've got a world and a country full of super fake churches, and as a result, we're producing super fake Christians. Today we see Paul in the first of several courtroom-type trials over the next few chapters. And spoiler alert, nothing is found against Paul. The only charges that can be brought against him are false charges. But this morning, I want to see the authenticity of Paul as he gives witness about himself and the gospel message. And in doing so, hope that we can aspire to Paul's example as he's an authentic gospel witness. Now, we left off last week with Paul on the journey to Felix in Caesarea as he's leaving, um, he's leaving Jerusalem. Uh, he's going to Felix, who's the Roman governor of the province, and he's heavily guarded by 470 Roman soldiers due to the plot of 40 men who've taken an oath not to eat anything until they've killed Paul. The journey from Jerusalem to Caesarea was four days on foot, so that scene advances about five days, giving time for Ananias and all the, the representatives of Sanhedrin to arrive. In this case, they've chosen some, an orator named Tertullus, who likely has some expertise in Roman law to act as their representative. And he does this magnificent job in doing so. The speech that Luke records follows the exact method that we know was, was ideal of Roman legal proceedings. He starts with a brief introduction that almost always includes what's called an exordium, something to win the goodwill of the presiding officer by drawing attention to some aspect of their judicial or their administrative competence. In this case, he has to stretch it a little bit about Felix. We'll get to that in a minute. But thus making Felix the right person to hear this case. Brevity was an ideal of rhetoric of the day, and he promises not to impose any longer than he needs to on Felix's time, and he praises him for his graciousness to hear him even in this matter. Tertullus then gets into the facts of the case and makes three charges against Paul in an attempt to prove to Felix that this isn't just a debate about matters of Jewish theology, as Lysias has already told Felix that this is just a debate about matter of Jewish theology, the resurrection of the dead. The first charge that Tertullus makes against Paul was one of sedition, a violation of Roman law. Peace was of utmost importance in Roman civilization, and any uprising against the established order of the Roman Empire was dealt with severely and harshly. He calls Paul a plague, one who stirs up riots amongst all the Jews throughout the world. Essentially, Paul was a public enemy of the Roman Empire. He exerted a significant destructive influence that spread through Jewish people with his dangerous speech and activity. The second charge against Paul was that of sectarianism, that he was a ringleader of a group of Nazarenes, here referencing Paul's devotion to Jesus of Nazareth. Now, governors were usually instructed by the emperor to give the Jews and the communities in which they lived a significant amount of tolerance in managing their own affairs and ruling their own religion. <clears throat> Something that the Sanhedrin, those who had come to represent him, had used to their own political and their own financial advantage. Dissensions amongst the Jews had often turned quite violent, and Tertullus is trying to say that this is what Paul was doing. This is something that could turn violent. He was a ringleader that was trying to overthrow the established order of peace that the Jews had had, and within the Jewish religion, and the Sanhedrin would lose power, and he was hoping that Felix would see this peril. The final charge was sacrilege, that Paul was desecrating the temple, something that even the Romans knew that they shouldn't do. 
but that he was rightfully arrested by the Jewish people before he could do any harm. Now, Tertullus ends with an appeal for Felix to examine Paul himself, and that Tertullus had no doubt that Felix, upon examining Paul himself, would find the veracity of these charges as agreed to by the Jewish leaders. And it's no doubt that the way that Tertullus laid out these charges, that the desired outcome that they wanted from this was not just to be given back to the Jews for punishment, but they wanted Paul to be executed, specifically on the charge of sedition. Now, Paul gets a chance to defend himself. And again, he does so in a magnificent manner, as we've seen Paul speak throughout the book of Acts. Paul also acknowledges Felix's expertise as a judge in this matter, citing the years that he's ruled over the Jewish province, and states that he cheerfully gives a defense to those charges. And Paul lays out the facts of the case. As to the charge of sedition, he argues that it's nearly impossible to create such an act in 12 days since arriving in Jerusalem. And if you break down those 12 days, day one was his arrival, day two was his meeting with James, and days three through nine were the days that he was completing the ceremonial ritual of purification and he was arrested on the ninth day in the temple. He affirms that he was not found arguing with anyone anywhere, nor could they find anyone that could prove that he was arguing with them. Paul makes it clear that it didn't happen anywhere in Jerusalem by pointing out that it was the synagogues, the temple, or the entire city. As to the charge of sectarianism, Paul states that he worships the same God of our fathers. He says, yes, I'm a part of the way, which they call a sect, but I believe in everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. He readily admits that he's a follower of Jesus, but to call Paul, Christ is attested to in the law and the prophets. And he thus holds to all of the sacred writings of the Jews and to their fulfillment of the sacred writings. He's not an enemy to the Jewish faith or to the Jewish people. He sees himself as truly and fully serving the God that's attested to there. Now, Paul does employ a little bit of strategy. He declares, I have a hope in God that they themselves also accept, but then adds the twist that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. And he says this knowing that the Jewish aristocracy that's come down uh, to Caesarea were largely Sadducean. And as we talked about several weeks ago, the Sadduceans did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, but the Pharisees, which represented the majority of the Jewish population, did. And so if the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin were to object to this, then it would prove before Felix that it was just a matter of the debate over over Jewish theology. He then makes a similar statement to what we encountered several weeks ago. I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and before people. Literally, even if it costs me something, my conscience is clear before my God and before others. And as to the charge of sacrilege, Paul has been absent from Jerusalem for six years, and he states that he only came for the simple reason to bring alms and to present offerings to the church in Jerusalem from the churches that he had been around and that he'd gathered this offerings. He was not surrounded by a crowd, but he was in the temple ritually pure, doing what was required of him in the law. In closing, he he argues that those who started the uproar were some Jews from Asia that saw him in the temple, and that they are the ones that started the commotion that ultimately led to his arrest. And those witnesses, if they were around, ought to be the ones actually bringing the charges themselves. Now, Roman law was particularly strong against accusers who abandoned the charges that they brought against people. The fact that they were not there testifying brought into question the the credentials of Tertullus, 
the high priest, and the designation as to whether they even have a right to charge him of anything since they weren't a witness to any of his crimes. Paul doubles down and gives them a chance to, to be a witness against him, and he offers to let them present what crime he committed in Jerusalem if, in fact, they saw one. And then he says, the only reason I might be here today is when I said in front of the Sanhedrin, it's on account of the resurrection of the dead that I'm even on trial. <clears throat> Paul has masterfully argued that it's only a matter of Jewish theology and not a matter of breaking the law that he's there today. Now, looking at the judge, neither side truly gets what they want at the moment. The case isn't dismissed. Paul isn't sentenced to execution as uh, Tertullus or the Jewish leaders would want. He isn't even given back to the Jewish rulers to administer some sort of physical punishment as they might have even liked. Felix, whom we were told has a rather accurate knowledge of the way, took an adjournment until he could speak with the uh, council of uh, Lysias. But he did instruct that Paul should be held, but he should have some freedom, and that the guard shouldn't prevent any of Paul's friends from attending to his needs. Several days later, Paul sent for a private audience uh, with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jew. Now, it's worth a few moments to discuss what we know about Felix and his wife, because this sets up what I really want to talk about this morning. We don't know much about the early life of Felix, except that he had a brother, some would contend that he was a twin, and that he was born a slave. Both later became freemen. Most sources point to Felix's brother as being friends and a favorite of the future emperor, Claudius, and it's believed that they earned their freedom in this way. Felix ruled in Judea from 52 to 60 AD, and he was appointed by Claudius, his, brother friend, his brother's friend, who is now the emperor of all of Rome. And Felix had taken over from a governor that had been relatively ineffective with frequent uprisings, with over 30,000 Jews dying during the riots of the previous governor. So most of Felix's reign was filled with giving the appearance of peace, but largely being unable to handle the problems handed to him and those that he had inherited. It's been written that Felix was a brutal, firm-handed governor over the province of Judea. He ruled without any fear from Rome, since he was friends with the emperor. Tacitus, a historian of the time, wrote that Felix practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with the instincts of a slave. Ultimately, he was unable to control the chaos of Judea, but Josephus writes that matters progressively deteriorated during his eight-year reign, and the net effect was that he just added more fuel to the fire. So very ineffective ruler. In his personal life, we know that Felix was married three times. One was the granddaughter of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and someone befitting of a future governor of a province in the Roman Empire. But his marriage to Drusilla was a bit scandalous in several ways. One, she was a Jew. We know about her because she was the daughter of Herod Agrippa from Acts 12, and she's the sister of Herod Agrippa II, which we'll read about in Acts 26. She was previously married to another regional king at the age of 14, but Felix, who was consumed by passion and smitten by her renowned beauty, convinced her to dissolve her marriage to this particular king after only two years and remarried Felix at the age of 16. So now Felix is sitting there with Drusilla, his wife, a Jew, 19 and on her second husband, who's an uncircumcised Gentile and a Roman governor. Highly irregular for a Roman to have a Jewish wife, especially one with such a high political rank. And it's to this mess of a couple 
This Paul speaks to privately about the faith in Jesus Christ. Felix, from his Jewish wife, certainly was well-versed in Jewish affairs and certainly knew about the way from Drusilla, who had probably kept up with this, which is what the early Christian movement was called. And then Paul speaks to them about authentic witness to the gospel. And Paul reasoned and spoke with them about three things of authentic faith in Jesus Christ. Something that every Christian should be able to proclaim and live, and that every church should be able to proclaim and practice. First of all, Paul spoke about righteousness. Now, we tend to think about righteousness in, in two ways. One is a way in, in which we should live. The Greek word here can be used in an in, in ethical sense of proper behavior towards others, meaning justice, equity, fairness, uprightness. And this is something that Felix, as a governor, was most likely very interested in to hear about, given the Roman concern for the law, how the Christian ethic matched up with the Roman law and their concern for this. However, Paul uses this Greek word in most of his writings as a more of a forensic sense, a judicial sense, meaning the fulfillment of obligations placed on individuals by God, whose righteous judgment will reward those who practice righteousness and condemn those who behave unjustly. We read in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is what it seems that Paul was speaking about to Felix and Drusilla, about justification. And I love this definition from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It defines it this way. That justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all of our sins, and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So yes, we are righteous in Christ as believers, those who have received Christ by grace through faith. God no longer sees our sin, but sees the merits of Christ that have been placed upon us. But practically, we know we still sin. And that leads to Paul's second point of conversation with Felix. That is self-control. Now, there were four virtues that were of utmost importance in ancient Rome. They were prudence, justice, courage, and what they called temperentia, or self-control. So it's no surprise that Paul would be discussing the Christian view of one of the four great Roman virtues of the time. And given the history of Felix and Drusilla, neither one had exhibited a great deal of self-control in their life. This particular Greek form for self-control is used four times in the New Testament. It's here, and in Galatians 5.23, is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And also in 2 Peter 1, where Peter says we're to add to our faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control steadfastness, and to steadfastness godliness, and to godliness brotherly love, and then brotherly love, and to brotherly affection love. And in verse 8, Peter writes this, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we know that we are positionally righteous in Christ, but practically our day-to-day -day lives often show something quite different. Whether it's our anger, our bitterness, envy, pride, lying, lusting, all of these are issues of self-control. And we're tempted to these things far more than we want to be tempted. And I think it would be argued that Paul here was talking about what we would refer to as sanctification. 
And again, going back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I love the definition that it gives. The sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Now, we know that life without sin is impossible here on this earth, that we'll never attain that. But it's something that we can strive to through self-control, through the enablement and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Finally, Paul speaks of the coming judgment. This is a central central tenet of the teaching of Christ. And read about this as Christ lays it out in Matthew 25. And all throughout the New Testament, Paul speaks of the coming judgment quite frequently. And it's a bit difficult to pinpoint what Felix's belief in the afterlife might have been. A lot of times, uh, commentaries and, and other scholars will kind of impose Greek mythology on what might have been going on in this time. I came across a recent book that examined the ideas of Roman afterlife in the first century. So Dr. Charles King, uh, out of the University of Nebraska, of all places. And he states that the Roman afterlife was one in which the Romans believed that death transformed ordinary dead people, men, women, and even children, into gods. The demonists who would be worshipped individually by their surviving families and collectively by the Roman state. It goes on to say, the Romans regarded their dead as gods, thought about them, communicated with them, attended to them, and intended to join them. What largely seems to be missing from any Roman view of the afterlife around this period of time was any view of a coming judgment, a true bodily resurrection of the saved to eternal life and of the unsaved, to judgment and eternal punishment. Again, the resurrection of Christ and its benefits to believers, a true bodily resurrection of the sinner and the saint, is a central theme to Paul, not only in his teaching, but also in his theology. Think back to the trial before the Sanhedrin, which he references again in this hearing, where he says, I'm on trial because of my belief in the resurrection of the dead. Or back to his speech where he concluded on Mars Hill before the people cut him off there, where he says in Acts 17.31, he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Speaking of Jesus. After hearing these three things, we see that Felix was, the ESV has chosen the word alarmed, but we can actually substitute the word terrified and sent Paul away. We know that Paul and Felix conversed more as he was captive for two years with Felix trying to put himself in a better situation. He was trying to get a bribe from Paul, thinking that surely this guy who's a leader of the Christians could surely get some money, give me some money, and get out of this situation, and also better a situation with the Jews by trying to get a favor with them by holding this guy captive. Now, Roman law prohibited the taking of bribes, but history, and what we already know of Felix, shows him to be a well-known giver and taker of bribes. Ultimately, Nero succeeded Claudius as emperor, and without his friend on the throne, Felix had no one to protect him anymore. He was recalled and replaced by Festus. Josephus writes that the Jews wanted Felix to be punished, but it seemed that his brother was in such high favor in Rome that he just disappeared unceremoniously. And what a shame it is to have sat there and had such a gospel witness presented to you, and then to reject it. So, Now, what does Paul have to do with super fake handbags? Paul was authentic in his words and actions in whatever situation that he was in. Here, 
or Acts 24, both in his public and private trials, he was always an authentic witness for Christ. There was never any discrepancy about what he taught or wrote and how he lived. He waited patiently on God to get him out of Felix's custody, knowing that he'd been promised that he would testify of the risen Christ in Rome. Surely Paul had access to money for a bribe, but a man with such character and integrity refused this and had an unwavering belief in God that he would be released at the right time and continue to spread the message of the risen Savior. Paul openly preached the entirety of the gospel to men more significantly powerful than him, those that could have him punished or even executed for his beliefs. He spoke openly and freely of the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but also as one, how one should live as a follower of Christ and the coming judgment and bodily resurrection of all people. Because of my nearly 25 to 30 years in, in, in fundamentalism, I still tend to bristle a bit when people talk about the coming judgment and the wrath of God and those types of things. But just because there were people in my past that yelled and screamed about this and used this in a very manipulative way does not negate the fact that it is true and that it is part of the gospel. So it is something that we do need to present people with. Spurgeon once wrote that if we do not preach of the coming judgment and wrath of God, we do not preach the gospel at all. So what does this mean to us as a church? I recently watched a documentary a couple weeks ago on the uh, humble rise and very fast and catastrophic fall of a well-known global church. And it talked about, through various interviews and, and situations and things, of what was shown when the stage lights were on and what was the message that was given was not what was practiced and not what was lived when the stage lights were off. And I watched as there were people who said they would never be back in church again, that they didn't believe in God anymore, that those who were once so passionate about serving God in church and, and living for God now just didn't care. And it really hurt me to watch that, to know that a church could have such a powerful influence on people and turn them away from something that they were once so passionate about through a church being so inauthentic. As I thought about that church and others like it, I read this on Twitter from one of my systematic theology professors from seminary this week. If your church's worship feels like a theater, don't be surprised if members act like spectators, actors, or critics. And I was thinking through this sermon this week. This is really my hope and prayer, and I know that Dan shares this as well, that we never become a theater as a church where we just show up, we sit in our seats, we say our lines, sing the songs, hear someone give a message, hopefully with some jokes in it. We walk out and change, more worried about lunch than about the worship of God. Where we care more about Instagrammable moments from church rather than being faithful to the actual gospel through scripture, song, liturgy, preaching, and the partaking of the sacraments. But whether where we are a church where our leaders live out what we say we believe and we hold each other accountable to that, where the gospel is never truncated or held back for numbers, for more money, for a better building, for ease, or for more recognition in the city or nationwide where the church has a vibrant community that's built around being loved by God and being loved by others, 
where each member recognizes the holy ordinary activities of daily life that point others to our risen Savior. So that's my question. And it's the question I've asked myself this week. Are we an authentic witness for Christ? Or are we all living as super fakes? God knows. We know. And it's highly likely that others around us know as well. So let's stop patching up the outside to make ourselves look good. But rather, may we truly repent, rip out anything from the inside that's fake, and allow the Holy Spirit to renew our lives from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus Christ who came and lived a sinless life, who died for us, who took our sins upon himself, was buried, rose again, and is now ascended to the right hand of the Father. We thank you that he is coming again in bodily form. We thank you for the comfort that is for us as believers, that there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus, but what a sobering reality that is to the world who's unsaved around us. Father, I pray that you would help us as a church, that we would be real, that we would never be accused of being hypocritical of saying one thing and doing another, but that we would actually live out what we say and, and, and preach. Pray for each member here and everyone that's here this morning, that we would examine our own lives, that we would look at what we say we believe and examine the inside of our lives and what the fruit of that and see if our fruit and what comes from the inside matches what we say is on the outside. We thank you. We love you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. In all these things, his name we pray. Amen.